Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Vayeshev, He Continued Living. The address is Breshit, Genesis, chapter 37, verse 1, through chapter 40, verse 23. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on December 15th of 2005. Note, all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim V'natan lanu et Torah to Baruch atah Adonai Noten ha'Torah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Welcome to Parashat Vayeshev. By now it should be rather obvious to those of you who have been following this series that the Torah is a living, breathing piece of literature spanning the lives and deaths of men, families, tribes, and even whole nations. If you've just joined in, I want to bring to your attention that the Torah is a supernatural, carefully planned out document designed to instruct and prepare its readers in every facet of their being. As we can observe by reading it ourselves today, some of the many ways it chooses to present itself is by means of narrative, by poetic, historic, prophetic, and legal structures, to name a few. I encourage and challenge you to read God's Torah for yourself. Don't let it sit on the shelf and collect dust. You should be reading your Bible, okay? This week, we quickly switch our focus from that of our latest familiar character, which was Yaakov, Jacob, to the life and times of one of his youngest and most famous sons, Yosef, otherwise known as Joseph in English. And I hope that by this point you've begun to appreciate the fast-paced, high-adventurous story uh, that our Heavenly Abba has provided for us in the book of Bereshit in Genesis. You know, if you stop and think about it, God could have easily just as, uh, just he could have skipped many of the exciting details that surround these quote-unquote heroes of faith and simply administered to us the meat of what is pertinent to us. The parts that help us to conform us um, to the image of the of his righteousness that is. Now, this is not to say that any part of Hashem's Torah should be thought of as trivially, uh, or a trivial, for indeed every part of it has been designed to help us to accomplish the task of um, reaching that righteousness that is ours in Messiah. Yet, I sincerely feel that when 
God had Moshe write the Torah, that is, you know, coin the words and put it together, that he made provision for the specific human emotions created within us that desired to, how shall we say, participate in some way with the intrigue, the suspense, the excitement, the love, and the betrayal that we read about in the Torah. After all, which one of us is a stranger to most of these elements? You and I experience the same things that the Torah characters do, to an extent. I mean, I understand they walked and talked with God sometimes, but it shouldn't be any different for us today. Um... You know, many of the things that we read about in the Torah mark our everyday lives here on earth. The the uh, suspense, excitement, love, betrayal, the stuff I just mentioned earlier. In other words, I really believe that God wants us to intimately identify with the lives of the people that we read about. He doesn't want us to think that this is a fairy tale or that we're far removed from the characters of the Torah, that they lived then and we live now and that things are just different. I think that God wants us to look at their lives and be able to see within them our own lives. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Let's keep reading. As I study this Torah portion, um, in light of the, uh, of the the statements that I just made about uh, their lives reflecting our lives, Parashat Vayeshev is no exception to these statements. This part of the Torah is far from slow moving. It, like so many other chapters of the Bible, ha- has its moments when the narrative slows down just enough so that we don't miss the highlighted details, but it's really never stagnant. It never stops. In fact, you could say that one adventure gives way into another, and so the plan of Hashem moves on unhindered. The Torah demonstrates for us that there was never an instance in the history of man that the plans of Hashem have been thwarted, not even for a single moment, not by man, not by demon, not by devil, not by any other created thing. Hashem has not abandoned his interest or has ever lost control of the activities and goings-on of this creation of his. Everything is predetermined to fulfill its created function to the glory and praise of our Almighty God. So, it is with this introduction that I want to quickly move through the details of the story of Yosef, stopping only long enough to glean what I feel the Torah is primarily trying to get us to learn. For, as we shall quickly find out, this particular man's life bears a rather striking resemblance to another, more significant son of Yaakov, in that Yosef's is a type and shadow of the man known as Yeshua. This particular section is entitled, Introducing Yosef. Yosef was a good man of good character. He was a young man, that is. And I believe that he was a quiet, simple young man with the kind of qualities that every parent wants their child to possess. And, and what are those? Honesty, integrity, loyalty, kind to those around him, gentle, kind to animals, and just the right amount of naivete and curiosity that allowed him to be, how shall we say, teachable. Our storyline gives us the details surrounding his early adventures with his other 11, mostly older brothers, and how his position with them quickly degenerated to a state of jealousy and resentment on their part. We all know from our Sunday school lessons that Joseph was the recipient of a colorful, long-sleeved coat. You've heard of Joseph's uh, coat of many colors. This was presented to him by his aging father, Yaakov. But 
what we might not have known is that this type of garment most likely signified his father's choice of tribal leader once he himself passed away. Surely this went against the cultural norm of his day. How so? Well, usually the eldest son was guaranteed this coveted position among his family. But in his old age, Yaakov favored his, Yo- his uh, younger son, Yosef. Maybe it was because it was Yosef that uh, came from his beloved Rachel. Moreover, I believe that Yaakov was able to see the anointing that rested on his son, as well as the potential for becoming a great leader someday. This might explain why in chapter 37 of our parasha, when we read about Yosef's God-given dreams of prominence among his other family members, rather than scold him severely for his boyhood fantasies, his father decidedly, quote, keeps the matters in his mind, unquote. That's a lifted from verse 11 there. Also, um, Yaakov sent his son Yosef to bring back a report of his brother's activities in verse 14. And this seems to demonstrate that his father trusted his son and sensed in him the above-mentioned potential. This next section is entitled, Yosef and Yeshua. Now, it's well known that Joseph is a type and shadow of the Messiah. This is even... um, attested to in rabbinic literature that, that Joseph is a type and shadow of the coming Messiah. Now, we who already recognized Yeshua as the long-awaited Messiah can instantly see in Yosef a picture of Messiah Yeshua. Let's just look at some of the details or some of the similarities between the two men. Yosef was the favored son of the father amidst all the other sons. Spiritually speaking, our Heavenly Father has many sons, yet he has only one quote-unquote beloved son. It is in this beloved son that he sees the potential to become the preeminent one among his other brethren, the chosen leader, you might say. And so, it is in this son that he bestowed the quote, long-sleeved colored garment of tribal leadership. Now, Joseph is an anointed man, even at an early age. This much is clear from the text of the narrative. However, Joseph runs into trouble when he encounters the brunt of his brother's jealousy and resentment. They spot him, as we read down through the story. They spot him as he approaches to check up on them, and, and he's just doing what his father told him. But they quickly plot to do him harm. They mock him all the more, and, and then they decided that enough was enough. It was time, they thought, to rid themselves of this this dreamer. Um, The text tells us that initially they intended to kill him. That is to say, they stripped him of his garments, and, and, and they were going to leave him for dead, but instead they tossed him into an empty well until it was decided what to do with him. Strangely... The Torah, the, uh, the Torah itself is silent as to any type of retaliation or struggle on the part of Yosef. I mean, wouldn't you have put up a fight if you were in Yosef's position? Why didn't he fight back? Was, was it perhaps that he was a helpless weakling? In an act of nobility, Reuven, Reuben, he intercedes on Yosef's behalf and they decide not to kill him, but rather to render him, uh, how do you say, powerless. So as, that is not able to return with a report to his father. Actually, the Torah states that they really did want to kill him then and there, yet Reuven's sensibility enabled them to see the folly in that plan, and instead 
offer them a solution that might simply teach the boy a lesson while sparing the shedding of blood also. We can now begin to draw some correlations between Yosef and Yeshua again. For instance, reading from the Gospels, we see that in the life of Yeshua, his own brothers, that is to say the Judeans, the Jews of the first century, they also discerned that a supernatural favor rested on him from his, quote, self-proclaimed father, at least from their point of view. They quickly became jealous and began to resent him as well. They began to tire of hearing about his dreams of preeminence and servitude, you know, I and the Father are one, things like that. And so they decidedly plotted to kill him, just like Yosef's brothers, thereby silencing his ability to bring any type of report about them to this Father in heaven of his. But Yeshua, being humble and obedient to the Father's command, just like Yosef, if you remember, became naive, as it were, and allowed them to strip him of his garments and hand him over to strangers. He experienced the same sibling mockery that Yosef did, indeed much worse, yet he, like Yosef, did not retaliate. So, going back to our Torah narrative here in Genesis, at this time of Yehuda's suggestion, Yosef's brothers sell him to a bunch of desert merchants who are on their way to Egypt. In this way, they indeed do spare his life. However, compared to Yeshua, when his brothers handed him over to the strangers, his life was not spared, but instead he was sentenced to die. Yosef's life was spared, but his brothers still wanted their father to believe that he did indeed die. So, if you remember, they dipped his coat in blood and concocted a lie about some wild animal devouring him, with only his coat surviving the demise. Because this report of theirs was the only one that Yaakov had, the Torah teaches that Yosef figuratively died. So, do you see the midrash between the two? Even though Yeshua did in fact die at the hands of his brothers in the first century, and Yosef did not, in, in effect, the story that the eleven brothers told Papa Jacob effectively killed his son. And so there's a midrash to be made there. To be sure, to Yaakov, his son was indeed dead. He was gone. Only Yosef's garment testified on his behalf the suffering and shame that he experienced at the hands of his tormentors. In fact, taking that midrash a step further, speaking of the coat that was, that was bloodied, I believe that one day Yeshua's bloody garment, which was stripped from him as well, will also testify of the shame and the suffering that he experienced at the hands of his tormentors. In fact, let's read from a verse, a pasuk, out of the Apostolic Scriptures. Let's read Revelation 19.13. Quote, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. End quote. I don't think I need to comment much further on that verse. This next section is entitled, A Father's Grief. When the report got back to Yosef's father that his son had... Uh, suffered harm. What did Jacob do? He rent his garments. That is to say, he ripped his clothing in two. And he went into intense mourning for his favored son. We're going to talk about this rending of the garments in a moment. But first, let me continue with our making of the Midrash, our type and shadow between Yosef and Yeshua. So, when the son heard, or sorry, when the father heard that the son had died, he rent his garments. Likewise, in the New Covenant, it is the New Testament, we read of a rather odd occurrence surrounding the death of Yeshua. Do you remember? 
Matthew records for us that the temple curtain separating the holy place, uh, the holy place from the most holy place, was ripped in two from the top to the bottom. That's Matthew twenty-seven fifty. Isn't that odd? From the top to the bottom. Now I'm sure you've heard in church that it was taught that this symbolized the access that we as believers in Yeshua now have to the throne of God, which which the mercy seat kept in the most holy place represented. And and this is true spiritually. I don't want to negate that. But I want to continue with my midrash, my homily. And and I think there's even a remez, a hint, of what might also happen as well. Now what some of you may not know is that in the days of the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, whenever a father lost a beloved son, he would usually rip his garment to signify his intense loss. His rending of his garment visually testified of the agony and the ripping of his soul, as he would never experience earthly fellowship with this beloved son again. In fact, for um, an example, you can look up Second Samuel 13.30 and 31 to see King David's reaction at the news of the death of his son Absalom. Today, in fact, in modern Judaism, at the loss of a beloved family member, the immediate family, that is to say the father, is known to cut a small portion of their lapel, which is symbolic of ripping the entire garment. Most most Jewish men don't rip their entire garment these days. We just cut a small piece in the lapel. In fact, for those of you who've seen uh, Schindler's List, a movie that documents the Holocaust and, 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 the, and the history surrounding that, you'll notice in some of the funeral scenes that... Um, they go and cut a small piece with a razor blade on their lapel, just like I'm describing. So, let's make this midrash uh, very, very uh, exciting. I believe that the temple curtain itself represented the garment, as it will, of Hashem. Did I stretch too far on that? The temple curtain was God's garment. And so, if you think about it, when His beloved Son died... Yeshua, I believe he wanted to send a clear and unmistakable signal to all that witnessed that this was indeed his beloved son. So, like Yaakov of our current parasha, what did God do? He quote-unquote ripped his garment to show his intensive suffering at the loss of this son of his. That makes for an interesting uh, uh, midrash, an interesting homily. I'm not being dogmatic, but uh, certainly seems to imply that. In fact, um, I imagine that when Yaakov's brothers witnessed the display of sorrow in their father, they must have felt some guilt and shame in their hidden dishonesty and their lack of family justice. Moreover, if we can make the connection with Yeshua, when Yeshua's tormentors witnessed the temple curtain rent into two pieces, they, they must have also felt shame and remorse because of their recent dishonest activities. They put an innocent man to death. We all know that the Yeshua's trial in the first century was a sham. It was a scandal. It was, it was not even a fair trial. It was a setup. And so... I'm quite certain that someone of that first century community must have seen the correlation between these two familiar acts of mourning, the ripping of the family garment or the ripping of the father's garment and the ripping of the temple veil, which Judaism has recognized is the very garment of God. I'm not making that up. If the temple was the house of God or the place where God's presence dwelt, then the 
curtain or the veil certainly represented uh, proximity to God's person. Um, and, and, and anyway, if someone of that century saw it, surely, um, even if they didn't, I'm sure that today I trust that we all see it as well. Okay, let's move on. This next section is entitled Yehuda Teaser, Judah Teaser. At this point, as we read down through the narrative, the Torah makes a seemingly odd turn and relates to the reader some activities surrounding the life of Yehuda. Yehuda, of course, is Judah, and uh, we get to read about his offspring in chapter 38. It seems like we pause with the Joseph narrative and we turn to Judah for a while. Um, in fact, we jump to Judah's story and his offspring in chapter 38, and then we jump back to the life of Joseph in chapter 39. So it might seem odd at first, until we realize that one of the main features of the story of the life of Yosef centers on divine selection, despite human frailty and position. Okay, Yosef, if you'll recall, was the chosen of the Holy One. God had, had, had uh, uh, elevated Yosef to a position of leadership even at an early stage of his life, and this was being seen and experienced by his other family members. The divine anointing rested upon him, in spite of the fact that he was young, seemingly unimportant, and ill-fated more than once in his life. So, we can draw a comparison between the life of Yosef and the life of Yehuda here, at least for the moment. Because, in fact, likewise, the man Yehuda, like his brother Yosef, would someday receive the preeminent blessing found in Genesis 49, verses 8-12, through 12, as well as being the forefather of the tribe from which Hashem chose to bring his son Yeshua into the world, you remember. Um, there's a reference to Revelation 5.5 5 that shows that Jesus, in fact, came from the tribe of Judah. So, Judah's not perfect. Neither is Joseph. Yet God anoints both of them for um, a, a, a great future among their other brothers. Yehuda made some pretty serious mistakes in chapter 38 in, in uh, dealing with his family. The whole prostitute thing. and that, that's, that, that's, a, that's a scar on his history. But, this doesn't seem to discount him from becoming the covenant player that Hashem has preordained him to become. To be sure, as we read further into the life of Yosef, we're going to find Yehuda emerging as a true leader among his other brothers. This next section is entitled, Yosef Goes to Egypt. As we continue reading through the portion, Yosef is eventually sold to a prominent officer of the Pharaoh's guards, to a man named Potiphar, or you've probably heard him called Potiphar in your uh, Sunday school classes. So uh, Potiphar also recognizes the anointing that rests with this man, Yosef. Isn't it interesting that when God anoints an individual, and if that individual is true to their calling and not disobedient, that is to say they're not rebellious, they walk in God's plans and God's ways, the anointing, I believe, can be seen by everyone around them. And it's no different with this man, Potiphar. So he decides to place him in charge of his entire household, including all of his treasured possessions. Isn't that a neat... Uh, promotion right up front. It is here in Potiphar's house that Yosef once again suffers at the fate of jealousy and deceit. It seems like um, wherever he goes, uh, he's anointed and yet uh, um, jealousy and deceit seem to be close at his heels. And this time it's not his brothers or anything like that. It's not jealous men. 
But in fact, it's perhaps something even worse. It's a jealous wife, a jealous woman. Not to say that women are worse than men. But gosh, for a young man like Joseph, this is the last thing he needs. A woman who's bent on destroying his reputation. Potiphar's wife, knowing that her husband works away from the house during the day, tries lustfully to get Yosef to sleep with her. She takes one look at Yosef, and the Torah describes him as a, as a handsome young man, and uh, she just decides she's going to have him. But being the man of integrity that Yosef is, he soundly refuses. There's a Bible lesson right there all in and of itself, young men. If you've got a woman chasing after you and she's not your wife, and she's not your mate-to-be, if you, that is to say, if you're unmarried, you need to flee youthful lust. Don't stick around. Follow Joseph's lead. Take off. Get out of there. In fact, uh, Botifar's wife continues this proposition day after day. She's thinking, you know, if I can just chisel away at him a little bit of a time, he'll give in. But what ends up happening is that she's the one that loses control. In fact, she can no longer control her lustful passions at some point. And so, in a fit of misguided emotion and desperation, what does she do? She lunges out to him and grabs him by his robe, demanding him to sleep with her. After all, Joseph does work for her. So, in a weird kind of way, she's giving him an order, expecting him to follow through with it. But... This time, Yosef wastes no time in trying to convince her with conversation, like I believe he did earlier, just you know, kind of brushing her off and, and maybe even leaving the room. Instead, he immediately turns and flees from Potiphar's house, leaving his robe in the hands of his would-be adulteress. So again, young men, follow Joseph's lead. Run, run, run. I believe his honesty and moral fortitude lands him in prison. In fact, I don't guess that they did. I know they did. He's honest. And yet, he gets sent to prison because the wife is jealous and she can't stand to be rejected by the likes of this man, Yosef. As much as she likes him, she despises his, um, his, his honesty. And so, she lies about the incident to her husband when he returns home. Here again, as we read down through the story, it seems just from a surface reading, is if Hashem has either chosen the wrong man for the anointing or God doesn't seem to be interested in Joseph's everyday affairs. What gives? And yet, nothing could be further from the truth. God's hand is on Yosef's life. Yosef's activities in chapter 39 conclude with the comforting assurance, in fact, that Adonai was with Yosef. You can read that in chapter 39, verse 21. Moshe inserts this into the narrative so that we know that it's not just fate, that it's not just uh, uh, circumstance taking place here, but rather it was Adonai who was prospering him, despite the seeming contradictory circumstances that we read about. In fact, verse 23 uh, um, confirms this. The parasha concludes in chapter 40 with the familiar story of Yosef in prison. And what he's doing there is he's interpreting the dreams of both the chief baker and the chief cupbearer of the Pharaoh. As it was, these two men both had landed in prison along with Yosef, and Hashem was preparing to bring Yosef into the very presence of the ruler of Egypt himself. We'll find out later that Hashem used this event to prepare the Pharaoh to consider Yosef's anointing 
also. But we'll have to wait till the weeks to follow to read about the exciting um, concluding events of this man, Yosef. At this point, I'd like to draw the commentary to a close. Okay, This last section is entitled, Conclusion. Well, after listening to the story as I've narrated it to you, and after having read it yourself in the Torah portion, the lessons today should be obvious. There are multiple lessons. I'll just pick out a few of them. Hashem masterfully orchestrated every single event in Yosef's life. That is to say, God brought him into the prison where he would be the key player in the provision and the leadership of the young tribe of Israel. God was doing this. It was not Joseph's doing. And it was not simply misfortune. There's a great lesson to be learned there. It's, it's necessary to allow Yosef, I believe God is, is teaching Yosef this, that it's um, necessary to allow Yosef to experience the pain and suffering at the hands of his brothers in order that the ultimate plan of Hashem, a plan that promised blessing and inheritance might come to pass, Joseph is being taught character because he's going to need it when he becomes the leader of Egypt and eventually the leader of the um, the brothers as well. So, it was this way also for our own Savior Yeshua, if you think about it. I mean, sometimes I think we get the idea that Yeshua stepped into the scene fully, how shall we say, trained, fully um, ready to to face anything that came his way. But the Torah speaks otherwise. In fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that he had to learn. I th- no, I think it's the end of chapter 5. Uh, that Yeshua himself learned obedience as a son. And so God saw fit to put his own son through the shame and the suffering that he Experience. He had to suffer shame and humiliation at the hands of his own flesh and blood in order that the will of the Almighty would be fulfilled. Again, same lesson as Joseph. Um, uh, Joseph suffers, Yeshua suffers. The life of Yeshua was sacrificed so that the lives of his brothers might be saved. Omain? That's true. Yeshua gave his life so that we could live. But first and foremost, as we read the narrative in the Gospels, it was for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But as we draw our comparison to Joseph here, we also see that the life of Joseph was sacrificed, as it were, so that the lives of his brothers might be saved. To be sure, in my concluding remarks, let me just state this in no uncertain terms. To be sure, in the case of both Joseph and Yeshua, Their immediate families weren't the only ones who would benefit from the sacrifice. The entire land of Egypt and surrounding communities were about to witness the provision of Almighty God as he worked through the obedience of Yosef, a humble, anointed son of Israel. Likewise, the entire world this time has witnessed, and shall witness again soon, the provision of Almighty God as he worked through the obedience of Yeshua, his humble, anointed, only begotten Son. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher natan lanu Torah temet vechaye olam natabatochenu Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. 
You've given us your, given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song, Shema, was written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com